Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A jewel in the desert. A round city full of merchants, rulers, and scholars. The great minds of the Abbasid Empire. This is Figures of Baghdad. Hello, fellow travelers. Welcome to Figures of Baghdad. I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. Last episode, we left Baghdad and we're still not returning yet. Not yet. You and I visited the city of Samara and I want to visit the harem in this city. I'm curious to see how different it is to Baghdad. And the last time we talked about the harem, it was very different than expected, no? Completely. It wasn't just a place of relaxation, rejuvenation and pleasure. It's the private quarters of the Khalif and his family. And it's important to note that the harem probably emerged gradually rather than being a sort of fixed institution in Islamic societies. Originally, the harem was part of the Middle East and older empires. Once the Muslims came on the scene, they adapted some of the local customs like the harem. Right. In fact, in the early periods of the Abbasids, the harem wasn't particularly common, even among the Khalifs. In the 8th and the 9th century, most of the queens and princesses had their own palaces. I mean, you remember Khaizaran? As if I could forget her, the queen who started off as a slave and shaped the entire succession of the Abbasids when she chose Harun al-Rashid over her other son. And she had her own palace. While she probably had some type of private quarters with the Khalif, she had her own palace. We also know that Zubayda had her own on the banks of the river. And that makes perfect sense to me. If the harem was developed because of changing social conditions for the Khalif and the adoption of older Persian institutions, then of course the queens and princesses would have their own palaces. But as with most things in this world, Ali, it eventually changes. It's really around that late 9th century that we start to see more and more the use of the harem among the Abbasid Caliphate. It really coincides with a clearer shift towards this Persian style of monarchy that we saw under Mutawakkil in the last episode. So you have a Persian style monarchy, a Persian style city, and now a Persian style harem. So more and more elite and royal women would be secluded through social convention. They were still politically powerful, but they were adapting to new cultural norms. Yeah, cultural norms is a really good way of thinking about it. There wasn't a law that prohibited royal women out in public, but social pressure and convention were really powerful motivating forces. And as you said, they could still shape politics from inside the harem. So the harem would also become a place of politics. Families are already messy, Ali, but add in politics and I can only imagine the drama. The place that was supposed to be the refuge of the Khalif could become pretty intense. And out of that harem politics, we would see some incredibly fascinating women emerge. We've already talked about Khaizuran and Zubaida, compelling and interesting figures. And Buran, who was the advisor to her husband, Al-Ma'moon. I remember her. She was also a scientist and a scholar in her own right. That's her. And in Samar, we would have another powerful woman, Kabiha. 
Now, wait a minute, Ali. Doesn't kabiha mean ugly in Arabic? I mean, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but did people think she was unattractive? The opposite, actually, Dina. She was supposed to be stunning, beautiful physically and in manner. Her name was probably meant to be ironic. Well, that's a little confusing. Was she more like Khaizuran or Zubaida? Khaizuran. Uh, Kabiha was another one of these politically powerful but very deadly queens. Oh, now we know how deadly the politics of this time period could be. So, of course, it would be the same for the harem politics. The stakes were just too high. You were competing for who would become the next caliph, and for queens like Khaizuran, and I'm guessing Kabiha, it was about making sure their sons inherit. And through their sons, they could shape the entire empire, Dina. Kabiha, like Khaizuran, had these humble origins, probably Greek, we think, and she was likely a concubine. She quickly would become the favorite of Mutawakil, enchanting him with her manner. One night when he comes to visit her, she has tattooed his name in henna on her face. Would you ever get a tattoo on your face, Ali? No, no, my face can't. I have a beard already, so I can't support any tattoos. was a risk and I mean it paid off. Honestly, I've seen some face tattoos and maybe Kabiha had a good idea there, but that wouldn't work for me. I mean, yeah, what would even happen if you get your partner's name tattooed and you then break up? I mean, at least with henna, it washes off eventually. That's true, that's true. But it's still a risk. <laughs> yeah, but it definitely worked for Kabiha. Mutawakal was smitten. With her direction, he appointed her son, Mutaz, to be his successor. And he gave her full control over the court festivities. And from the Zarif or Zarafa culture we talked about, parties and planning all carried important meaning now nothing was casual everything was intentional everything had symbolic power now add to this that she was a bit of an architect so she designed large palace audience halls she created this open and beautiful space to celebrate her son and for Nauruz. On a side note, I love how these figures that we're learning about all have multiple talents and occupations. <laughs> They're very talented. You mentioned Nauruz. Nauruz is a Persian word. It means new day or new year. Yeah, it's the Persian New Year, which along with these other customs we've talked about, the palace, the harem, the city, they were all adopted by the Abbasids. I really love how every culture has New Year celebrations and variously beautiful ways of looking to the future. And the Persian New Year is actually celebrated on the spring equinox, we should point out. Which makes sense more so than the random calendar date that we've picked. I mean, I quite like Nauros. People put out these special tables with symbolic items to draw in good fortune for the year. You've got mirrors and fruits and sweets. They read poetry in their horoscopes and hope for a good year. My best friends are actually Persian and they always get goldfish too. That's part of yes. the spread, right? Yeah. It sounds like such an important festival and Kabiha plays a big part in shaping it. We really can't overlook how important cultural power like that could be, especially in Samara where symbolism and formality would become part of the court culture. Right, and Kabiha was the master of that. Her influence even extended to the issue of succession. She had already secured the caliphate for her son, but with the death of Mutawakil in 861, the anarchy in Samara would begin and last until 870. I can see how, like the War of the Two Brothers, the anarchy would pit faction against faction. The Turkish guards, which were loyal to the caliph, turned on Mutawakkil and chaos would ensue. 
It was bad. There was a series of rapid succession caliphs. First, Al-Muntasir was elevated to the caliphate by the soldiers who had supported him over Kabiha's favorite, Mutaz. But he was poisoned within about six months. Some say he died of natural causes, some say poisoned. Which one do you think it is? I think poison. I always think it's poison. And then you had Musta'in, who was a cousin, and he was appointed. But the situation was rocky. So along with his supporters, led by Bugha, the guy who killed Mutawa, they would flee to Baghdad. That allowed Mutaz to be named Khalif in Samarra. So now you have two Khalifs. That means the anarchy would become civil war. It really seems that killing Mutawakkil unleashed something. Khalifs had been murdered in the past. That's not new, but it was always hinted at a secret plot. The outright killing of a Khalif, however, by his own troops is such a different affair. It marked a new type of political force. The Mamluk Turkish soldiers were now kingmakers. Two caliphs, two capital cities, two warring factions. It sounds really familiar, Ali. It's like the war of the two brothers with the new factions and a new capital, yet another civil war. And this civil war would be brutal, Dina. Some historians actually think it was worse than the war with the two brothers. The forces of Samara under Motaz raised the agricultural grounds and cut off the canals leading to Baghdad. And that's important because the canals were the lifeblood allowing trade and resources. The entire movement of goods and people is through the winding roads and canals. Exactly. In the end, it would be Kabiha actually who works out a truce of sorts. She sends a message to Al-Musta'in and convinces him to abdicate in return for his safety. And in fact, she relies on some old friends that we visited earlier, the Banu Musa. Wow, so Kabiha literally ends the war. That's a huge diplomatic win. And she gets even a bigger win from there. So first she works behind the scenes with the Banu Musa. You can see how the Banu Musa and Kabiha become the powers behind the throne. But then it's not enough that Al-Musta'in abdicates. She turns to one of the Turkish guards, Ibn Tulum, and says... Kill him and bring me his head. And he does. Mustain is killed. His head is brought to Mataz, her son, who's busy playing chess. So he says, throw it over there. And that is the end of the previous Khalif. Talk about securing your son's position, Ali. Kabiha was taking no prisoners. Literally. Yeah, she does give me on vibes. A powerful queen playing a lethal game of politics. Yeah, and Kabiha ends as one of the most powerful people in this time period. She's also super wealthy. Ah, now that gives me more Zubaida vibes, who used her wealth to support the different projects of Baghdad. Well, sort of, but not exactly. She has a slightly different use for her wealth. Mutaz's power is not particularly secure, and at one point, the Turkish guard will put him under arrest and demand a ransom. So he turns to his mommy, he turns to Kabiha, and says, Kabiha, you've got to help me out. But Kabiha says, I have no money. And this pisses off the Turkish guard, so they put him in prison until he dies. Angered, they storm her palace only to find it empty. She had disappeared. Where did she go? They start to tap on the walls and they discover 
a false wall. Pushing it open, they find a secret tunnel where she had escaped, and wall-to-wall gold. They were so angry, they accused her, for a few dinars you had allowed your son to die. And so she's exiled to Mecca and Medina. Number one, these Turkish soldiers are really problematic. (laughs) Yeah, I know. They're causing a lot of issues. Khalif after Khalif. I know, right? And number two... Habiha, you didn't value your son? Apparently not. She put him on the throne, but she didn't work, and she even gave him the throne a second time when she forces another caliph to abdicate, but then in the end, abandons him. It's possible the story is a little bit made up to malign her. Mm, To make her seem like an evil mother. Yeah, a retroactive, oh, she was actually a bad mom. I don't even know what to say. She's such a complicated but interesting figure. No doubt Kabiha was powerful, we'll give her that. She shaped the succession, secured power for her son, even commanding the Turkish guards before they turned on her. I do want to hear more about her son though, because I get a feeling that there is even more to the anarchy in Samara, but we'll leave that for the next episode. Thank you for coming along. I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. This is a Ubisoft podcast produced by Paradiso Media. Be sure to subscribe to the Echoes of History podcast so you don't miss the next episode of Figures of Baghdad. See you next time, fellow travelers. Hi guys, Ali here. Before we go, I just want to give a shout out to Daniel Bolelli at History on Fire. History on Fire is a long-form, award-winning podcast. Each episode is a deep dive into the larger-than-life characters and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience. If you like your history to be accurate, but also enjoyable and epic, check out History on Fire wherever you listen to podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.